right. How's that? You happy? I'm going to move into the middle. I'm going to do all kinds of things. I'm going to start off with dance. I'm putting the microphone up. There we go. Got that lodged in there. Right, you want me to come in the middle? Can you imagine what it's like in Debbie's house? I bet everything's symmetrical. Martin, Martin is particularly symmetrical. Right, I'm going to have a stool as well. Has any, have any of you watched the YouTube clip? Parry, oh, that's a bit bouncy. Lorraine? This chair, have you worn this chair out? Yeah, it's <laughs> um, Has any of you seen that clip on YouTube, a parody of a, a modern church? It's really, it's absolutely terrifying because it looks a bit like us. <laughs> And the reason you have the chairs, then you can stand up and you emphasise things more, you see. So. Right, okay. As you may be able to tell, certainly by the end of this, I've not had as much time to prepare as I would like. So, um, because um, it's always good to talk with those, you know, who can give you help on that, I thought, who can I talk with who would know how to deal with stuff when you've not prepared? So Mark Baden was over last night. And, uh, and he gave me a good tip. He said, I'll tell you what, why don't you tell them where you want to get to at the end, and if you don't get there, you've got it covered. So I want to tell you what I want your response to be. No matter what I say, this is what I want your response to be. Okay? Um, of course, it won't make sense until we get to the end, but we'll, we'll hope for the best. So, firstly, I want to challenge us to turn off the autopilot. And secondly, I want us to root out idolatry from our lives. Juicy, eh? The second one kind of makes sense even before I say anything. The first one's going to be a bit more tricky, so I'll have to get some places and see how we do. Right, my wife just spotted, I've got a dodgy Bible here. I've got a Bible with extra bits in it. Yes. So if I start reading from the book of Tobit, then at that point you can say, heresy, or something like that. So I've got a a Catholic Bible here, and I didn't realise that until I was stuck into it. Okay. Right, the question I want us to look at, um, uh, the question we want to look at is how we are in the land, okay? How we are in the land. So uh, my particular part is looking at um, this whole thing about uh, coming into the promised land, coming into the broad place. I'm really, if you want to kind of take yourself back in time, I really want to pick up on the stuff we've been looking at since we went away together in February to clear sound. And uh, actually, have we, have we said welcome to Bob Baker? Yeah, no. We have. I must have been the loo. <laughs> right, there you go. He was in my eye line, so. Bob, uh, Bob headed up the school that I did my teaching practice on, so I always feel I've got to behave when he's, when he's here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look this way. So I don't see him. Okay, so how we are in the land. Remember, the, ho- the whole thing about clear sound, we talked about coming from a narrow place into the broad place. We particularly picked up the whole thing about the children of Israel coming out of the desert, coming out of the time of captivity in Egypt, and then coming into the promised land. But it wasn't an easygoing thing. It wasn't, it wasn't something they could just kind of walk through and do. Um, in fact, in some ways, there were, there were more skills and things that they had to get to grips with in that sense. Um, so that's what we want to look at a little bit. But, you know, there was a couple of things I just want to throw into your minds a little bit. We talked a bit about some of the stuff that's happened to you in the worship. Um, I, I listened to this great thing on, the ra- on, um, on a podcast about, um, about a, a recent trip and a conference in Sri Lanka. And I just wanted to kind of share it with you because I got so excited. In fact, I was, I was exercising at the time. Hard to believe, I know. But I was exercising, and I, and I, and I found myself running along, crying, um, because I was so excited. Talked about a woman that came for prayer uh, in this conference in Sri Lanka, and her, her arm had been broken. I think it was a woman. Her arm had been broken and not set properly, and it was all bent. And as they prayed for her, the arm kind of straightened out. And I said, you know, this is amazing. God's doing some amazing things. And she said, well, does he do eyes as well? <laughs> and she was blind in one eye. She didn't even have a... It was just white. And as they prayed for her, the colour came back and the cornea grew back and that kind of thing. And, and her eye, she started seeing for the first time. And then she said, but my other eye's gone fuzzy. 
what happened, she had a contact in her other eye. She had to take the, the uh, contact out because God, God wants us to be in fullness. He doesn't do, he's not happy just with the arm. He wants us to be in fullness. So there you go. It doesn't fit anywhere else, but I wanted to tell you it anyway. It's good, isn't it? I fancy a bit of that healing. Yeah. Hmm. We'll, we'll see, Alan, if there's some opportunities. Okay. Let me give you the context of some of the stuff we've looked at so far. So we, we've looked at, um, we've looked at uh, the, the children of Israel crossing the, um, crossing the Jordan. As they crossed the Jordan... God stopped the water so they could cross, and there's all kinds of things they had to do with taking the altar. They made a monument, and part of the monument we looked at before, when I last spoke to you, I know Nathan did this as well, looked at the monument being a thing of saying, okay, this is what God's done. They put a bunch of stones there. It was thankfulness. It's an important starting point of thankfulness. We've heard a lot about thankfulness, haven't we, as a body of people? And you know what? We need to keep hearing it. Because we, we need to start there. We need to count our blessings. We need to be thanking God for what he's doing and has done with us. And it's good to revisit. Um, I was talking to um, some folk yesterday, and, and some people have come through some time of, of mental health issues, of anxiety. And I know of one person amongst us who, who sits down at the end of the day and writes down all the things to be thankful for. They make a chronicle... I would say, a, a diary of such, but a chronicle of things to be thankful for. On a bad day, they can go back and relive those things. There's a choice to be thankful. In fact, there's a command to be thankful as well. You see, uh, and there's some interesting things, a command not to be worried as well. I just looked at this during the, during the sermon. Oh, sorry, during the worship. Right. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Your kindness should be known to all. Interesting, isn't it? So rejoice and your kindness. We know you've got to be doing things to be kind for your kindness to be known. The Lord is there. Have no anxiety at all, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thankful, thanksgiving, make your request known to God. Then the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Yes? Command of thankfulness and kindness. Interesting thing there. So anyway, so they build a monument. Build a monument of stones, thankfulness, that kind of thing. Uh, we spent quite a lot of time last time I spoke to you about circumcision. Lots of wincing going on, but a thing about being set apart and different to those around them. Okay? It was also the time of the end of manna. Remember, manna would come when they're in the wilderness. It came every day. They gathered the manna on the Sabbath, and they had to live in that whole dependency way of being. And part of what I looked at you guys last time, which was about six months ago, so I'm not expecting you to remember... Some of you may be dialing it up now, just to check and see if I said it. But it was about maturity. Thanksgiving, maturity, and living. Not a hand-to-mouth existence, but living in a different fashion. So that's the context we're in. They then go, uh, they defeat, um, uh, the, they, they deal with uh, Jericho, the walls come down, all that kind of stuff. The worship being key at the start of that. They have a hiccup with the town of Ai, or Ai, or anyway, Ai however you guys want to pronounce it. There's a lot of words here I realise that I'm going to skip over because I can't pronounce them for toffee. So they have a hiccup there, they deal with sin in the camp, and they come back and they defeat that, okay? So that's, that's part of the context, and we're going to get to talk about the Gibeonites, which are interesting. But I wanted to also pick up on the cultural context they found themselves in, and I think that's interesting I think it's interesting because I think so much of what we're looking at and can look at in Judges and we look at as we look at the children of Israel coming into the promised land, I think it really reflects on our culture and the context that we have today. Okay? I did some reading around. I tried to find some things. I remembered somewhere, and I've not been able to find this, so I remember somewhere there was stuff about the Philistines. The Philistine means, the word means something about self or glorying in self. So... Now, as I say, I was unable to find that as I was researching, so some of you will find that. Neil's not here, so... In fact, there's no one to check on anything I say today. <laughs> so you really must weigh this yourself, right? Because it's not been checked out, and not had a chance to talk to Dad about it or anything. It could be completely dodgy. And again, if I read from Tobit, you know. So... Um, so, there's something about Philistines and being self-focused, but it's interesting as you look at the Baal worship. So, there's the major god of that time in 
in that region, the Canaanites, was Baal. And uh, he made harsh demands. So he would demand child sacrifice. But other than that, there were no laws. There were no rules to live with. There were no Ten Commandments. In fact, it was a do-as-you-please religion. Do-as-you-please. Do what you fancy. See what feels right to you. That sounds familiar to me. That feels like the world we live in. In fact, the interesting thing is it's not just a way of being, but it becomes a religion. A religion of doing what you want. Which means that if it's a religion, if it's a way we live, it means that if, I, if I'm doing what I want, don't you dare tell me what I should do. Because it's what I want. And this is my religion. You know, um, I, was, uh, I was running along. Did I tell you about the, the dog in the park? Have I told you this already? Right, okay, I was running along, and this boxer or some large, gruesome dog-type thing came at me. It was kind of, I think it was happy enough, it was bouncing away, but it was, you know, when you're running, you don't need things in and out your feet, I find. Putting one foot in front of the other is not easy. So the owner was there. Um, I'm just scanning you guys quickly, just to make sure I'm not describing anyone. He was in, <coughs> he was in tracksuit bottoms and, a, you know, a hoodie kind of thing. He had a particular look, which I believe is what I would say I called it a special dagenham look. Um, He had a particular look, and I had all kinds of uh, prejudices about him and that kind of thing. Anyway, afterwards, at first I was all right, and he was saying, come away, I know, Toto, whatever he was saying, come away, come away. (sighs) And the dog was still bouncing in and out of my legs. And I said, you know, I say all being, be wonderful if you were to remove your canine from my feet. Actually, I said, get him away from me. And he said, whoa, you've got to stop moving then. I said, I'm just running here in a straight line. It was interesting because he was doing the right thing to stop. Well, other than the fact he had not trained the dog to start with, and he probably should be wearing proper trousers, but other than that... He was doing the right thing, but the moment I said to him to do something, in fact, encouraging him, he reacted to me. Because in him, and I believe in us often, but certainly in the world, is such a large portion of rebellion that as soon as someone tells you what to do, it rises up in you. Like, oh, you've got to do, you're, you're making it worse by running. When I, was, um, when I lived at home, um, I would just, uh, we'd finished eating dinner, um, mainly cabbage. Um, I, I, don't, I don't have cabbage as much, I mean, I don't know if as much cabbage exists as when I was a child. You know, there, was, there was a potato, there was a bit of meat, and the rest was cabbage. Anyway. They all fancy things now since I moved out. Right. Anyway. So I'd just be finishing my cabbage... And I'm just about to get up and go and do my homework. And my mother would say, go and do your homework. And I said, right, I'm not doing it now. Because I was going to do it. I wrapped it up into, you know, I wanted to have the, 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 the righteousness of doing the right thing myself. But actually, it was just a rebellion. She was telling me to do the thing I was going to go and do. I don't want to do it. Watch Neighbours instead. Back in the day. So... Easygoing, enshrined self thing. Do I should I move that down? Because I'm going to look down all the time. No? Yeah, I'm all right. Okay, right. Okay. So this idolatry is part of what we see in the land. It's very potent. You know, Bill Johnson said in a recent uh, podcast, he said, everyone worships. Everyone worships. The question is what or who? So all of us are worshipping. And I know, you know, we've had people, a very close relationship people, people come in amongst us. But actually when, uh, I, very sad tale of a young man I had to do with, and uh, he said to me, you know what, and Nathan and I, are, you know, we're, in theory we're brothers, we, we don't look alike, yeah, he looks like my father, so... But generally, people that like the stuff I like, you know, intellectual, cultured, <laughs> don't necessarily like the things he likes. You know, Judy was our friend, and then she got involved with him, and now we don't see her. 
at all. Anyway, this chap, I'd known him for many years, and he was around, around us, and he said to me, you know, I think God has told me I should be looking to Nathan for discipleship. Fell off my chair? My goodness. Right? Because he was, you know, he was into different things, he was artistic, he was cultured, you know, think of the things that Nathan is, and he was not those things. Um, and it's interesting because he, had very, he, was, he wouldn't have made that one up, I need to look to Nathan. But you know what? Um, he started to see Nathan. Nathan brought something to him about essentially idolatry. He didn't put it like that. But there's something in your life that's more important than other things. Whoosh! He touched the holy cow. That was it. Because this guy was worshipping, but not willing to worship what he should be worshipping and that kind of thing. And you know what? I hadn't touched it. I hadn't touched it enough. I'd probably compromised. So that's a key thing. So idolatry being big. We're going to worship, we're going to worship something. It's interesting, um, I think I talked to you about something I picked up about Gideon, and when it said that Gideon, uh, when, when the Spirit of God filled Gideon, part of the, if you look at the word study, part of the thing is it, it's that God filled him like a hand fills a glove. So Gideon is operating so much in, in the Spirit of God, with the Spirit of God, that it's like that God just put him on. It's interesting that in Judges 9, we're not going to stay there long, so I'll just read it to you, and you have to trust that it's all right. Judges 9, lost me a bit, 22. Oh, no, it's Judges 8, 22. Oh, there you go. This is towards the end of Gideon's time. I'm jumping forward a bit, obviously. From Joshua, The Israelites then said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your son's son, for you have rescued us from the power of Midian. It's that old thing again. Israelites wanting a king. That's not God's method at this point. He wants a king. They want a king. But Gideon answered then, um, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord must rule over you. Good. A good response. Yeah? Unfortunately, as you can see in your Bibles, it doesn't end there. Right? Gideon went on to say, hmm, I'd like to make a request of you. Will each of you give me a ring from his booty? That means something different, I know, now to the kids. So, <laughs> old Bible. It means from his treasures, not anything else. Right, ring from his booty. Um, for being Ishmaelites, they had gold, the enemy had gold rings. Uh, we will gladly give them, they replied, and spread out a cloak into which everyone threw a ring from his booty. The gold rings that he'd requested weighed a 1,700 gold shekels in addition to the crescents and pendants and purple garments worn by the kings, da-da-da-da, and the trappings that were there on their necks and the camels. Gideon made a, an ephod out of the gold and placed it in his city. However, all Israel paid idolatrous homage to it there and caused the ruin of Gideon and his family. Gideon refuses a kingship, but then he takes something for himself. He makes this ephod, which I think is a kind of pole thingy, and people start to worship. It doesn't say if Gideon worshipped it, but it's interesting. He got distracted by the idolatry in the town and, and in the city, and he, he did that, which people... So the idolatry is so potent that even someone like Gideon, who, remember, has, has had the, op- the operation of the Holy Spirit with him such, or Spirit of God with him such, that it's like he was wearing a glove, like God was wearing him as a glove, gets distracted and taken apart. And so what is the risk of idolatry for us today? Well, I think it's this thing of self or flesh. Depends how you want to put it. I think it is alive and well. I think, you know, I'm not, in, uh, I'm not on face, Facebook, but I do do Twitter. Um... And uh, there's lots of different social media things, but a lot of it focuses back on me and self. And it's also very powerful and very useful, and it's a technology, and we can, you know, we can use it. But actually, how we use it, I think, is quite potent. I almost, I almost use Heidi's Facebook to, to go and get pictures of people, maybe particularly our young people. People doing selfies and pouting into the camera, particularly Gary Walker. You should see his pouty pictures. Yes. Big, lots of lipstick, a special red dress he's got. No, but these, these things, these, these, the self-focused stuff, and that's just the minor stuff, the stuff on one side, but the, the thing of self is really big. And I think it can be alive and well in us as a church if we don't challenge it. It means that someone can pose an issue or a problem or a, a thing they're, they're struggling with, and what we can do is we can dish out platitudes because we want to be nice. 
right? We can dish out, we can dish out good advice. We can kind of be, you know, helping people say, oh, yes, let's pack them back on. Rather than actually looking to challenge and hear God make a difference. We can get stuck in worldly wisdom and things that sound good. There's a lot of worldly wisdom kicking out. I write regularly, write blogs, and I have to be careful to think, am I just putting out kind of rehashing of, a, of an agony aunt type thing? Or am I trying to make a challenge? That's why it's good. Dad often says to me, he reads some of the stuff I've said, or with some of the stuff we've posted in Faith Action. He says, well, that's, that's good, but what's your answer? What's your response? And, uh, and it's a good challenge to have. What, what do you want people to do? That's why I had to start today saying, what do I want, what I want you to do at the end of this? What's our response? You know what? I, um, Ken's not here, is he? Absolutely perfect, because it means I can tell his story, and if I get it wrong, he can't tell me. But this is how I remember it. I was sitting with Ken Jarvis. We were going to have a meeting about some, some medical stuff that we were looking at for Faith Action. And I said to him, Ken, you know, I don't know how you became a Christian. And I thought it would be some kind of friendship evangelism thing, some kind of... And he said, well, you know, as I was studying medicine, as I was studying the science and the, all the kind of wisdom and all that kind of stuff, I looked at the human body and I realised there must be God. See, all the earthly wisdom, all the earthly knowing things, at the end, results in not being enough. And I think that's a potent thing. We must get Ken to share his testimony, and we must dwell on that a little bit. So often people go in to uh, extend their brains and study those things, and they fall away from God. But it's interesting, and that actually brought him to God. So, how do we deal with this idolatry within us? Firstly, one of the things I think we have to do is, again, look at what God's been talking to us about discipleship. And some of you may recall that a while ago, um, or actually a number of years ago, we had a chap called uh, David Cobb who came and spoke to us, and he talked about different ways of listening. Now, I can't remember the right term. You might remember, David. I can't remember the right term. There was hupo and kuo, and I don't know if that was the good one or the bad one. But basically, how we listen makes a heck of a lot of difference. In fact, part of the whole thing is the word to listen alongside, i.e. as a peer, is actually similar to the word to rebel. So how I listen makes a difference. And I've tried to demonstrate it to people. Actually means it kind of if I come and sit at someone, literally sit at someone's feet and say, How is it you do that? And if I then sit stand there, how is it you do that? It makes a difference. Our positioning. In drama we call it status games. When we meet people, there's often a status game that goes on. You can see when people clash. It's not because they don't, shouldn't get on. It's just they're just trying to decide subconsciously who has the higher status. So it's a fascinating thing, but it's to do with our status, how we put ourselves. So, so discipleship is about listening under. You can ask the same question. You can use the same words, but actually it's about how you come about something. It means I'm looking at this poor person as a source that God is giving me. A source to change and develop and do something. But one of the things I've been saying to, to the leaders and saying to Dad particularly, I wanted to emphasise, was this thing about apprenticeship. Because I think, we've, I think if we're not careful, we can think that discipleship is like um, a kind of Christian counsellor. We kind of lay out on a bench and, and say, we meet eyeball to eyeball, and we say, this is what's going on, and I've got these problems and issues going on. And... Actually, I think, although that, particularly if the discipler has is, is got to grips with things, I think they can speak into your life, they can make a difference. But actually, there's something about working alongside. In fact, the pictures we see, or some of the clearest pictures in the Bible we see of discipleship are what I would call apprentice relationships. In fact, my understanding, and Suji, I don't know if she does remember this or not, but one time we had a, a Chinese lady visiting us, and she spent some time with Suji, and Suji said, I believe... I'm not going to ask you to counter this, but was what is this Christ apprentice? It would seem the word that this woman was using in Mandarin for, for Christian was Christ apprentice. So it was apprentice to Christ. I think it's a powerful, active term in terms of what we need to look at. So we see the picture of Jesus and the disciples. They followed him around. They got to ask him what it was and why it was he did stuff. He explained things. He, they saw him in action. Of course, Jesus himself would have been apprenticed as a carpenter as well. 
We would have seen that kind of thing, that watching and doing, watching and doing all the time. We see Barnabas, we've heard about Barnabas and Saul who became Paul. That whole thing about going alongside. It's not sitting down on the couch, it's going alongside, watching and doing and asking. And then we see uh, Paul and Timothy and Titus in that sense. See, it's not about, it's not about navel-gazing. It's not about just talking about problems. It's, not about, it's actually about receiving inheritance, receiving skills, getting to grips with things. It's actually not about, this feels good to me. It's about, let me learn about what you're doing. It's not about an easygoing religion which is about just supporting the things I like. See, we relate it to that. It's about coming out of ourself and out of our flesh. It's actually giving someone a road and a word into us that we're not necessarily getting from other things. Okay? It's, a, it's a different avenue. It's completely, I would say, countercultural. Even today, even if you see how people regard experts, you watch, I don't know, Newsnight or some of these things, even an expert is ripped apart by... By someone on, on, you know, by Pac, not Paxman anymore, but by someone, Evan Davis, whatever, kind of, well, Evan Davis doesn't really rip people apart. It kind of nuzzles them slowly to death. But because we don't have that, we, it's like I, I am a law unto myself. I know. I can judge. I am God. It's funny, we are, we are facing the same situation as we ever were. We're in the same situation that made Satan fall in the first place. I am a God. You can't tell me. No one can tell me. I am a God. That's what we're faced with. That's what we're seeing in our world today. That's what's being pushed out. There's a thing of identity as well. One of the things... Hang on. Send me other note. One of the things I've noticed, and I don't want to take too much time to go into this today, but if I can say something is who I am, then you can't question it, okay? If I can say, I am this way, it can't be questioned. That's the ultimate thing. So, I'm English. I'm gay. I'm all these different things. I'm not announcing I'm gay at this point. (laughs) Most people say there's no way you can be gay, you don't dress well enough. So, uh, <laughs> Gary's nodding. <laughs> right? All those things, you can't, they can't be questioned. I don't want to go into all of those, but as soon as I make it an identity, as soon as I say, this is who I am, that means, uh-uh, you can't question this thing. You can't, you can't step in, you can't deal with it, you can't, because it's who I am. I take a behaviour... And I make it who I am. And I think that's the thing we've got to be careful with. We take something we're facing with some crisis and we say, I am like this. I'm a person with a limp, metaphorically speaking. And that, that's who I am. That's, I'm now defined by that. And you can't question it because that's who I am. That's what my identity is. I've been talking to some folk at work. It's interesting when you're dealing with management issues. I said to this chap recently, I said, listen, you have got a problem... It's like a stake in the ground. You're now cementing around that stake, and it's your very identity, the very thing, and you can't touch anything because it all links onto that thing. It's amazing how this one uh, disability then actually creates a whole way of being. But you see, if you're in a discipleship relationship, if you're open up, if you're seeking to, to listen under, all that has to be cast to one side. It has to be different. And it's so counter the world we live in. It's so counter the way things are. Right. Let's look at Joshua 9 (coughs) together. So, context I gave you. Just had done with Jericho, done with I, we're done with these kind of places, and we come along to these tricksy people called Gibeonites. Okay, we go from verse 3. Now, because I'm reading from my alternative Bible, this will be fun, because nobody will be able to follow it, unless you have a New American Bible version. Not New American Standard, New American Bible. 
Mm, see, you should see the puzzle in his face. Right, on learning what Joshua had done to Jericho, and I, the inhabitants, the inhabitants of Gibeon, they put into effect a device of their own. They chose provisions for a journey, making use of old sacks for their asses. It's going to be one of those days. For their donkeys. <laughs> Booty and asses. We're having a wonderful time. Uh, and old wineskins, torn and mended. They wore old patch sandals and shabby garments. Um, sounds like us come to church. Um, and all the bread they took was dry and crumbly. They thus journeyed to Joshua in the camp at um, Gilgal where they said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant land to propose that you make an alliance with us. But the men of Israel replied, You may have been living in the land that is ours. How then can we make an alliance with you? But they answered to Joshua, We are your servants. Then Joshua asked them, Who are you and where are you from? They answered, We are your servants. We come from a far off land because of the fame of the Lord your God. And I'm going to, Anyway, they basically recognize all the stuff God's done. I'm going to jump down. Otherwise we'll be here all day. Um... Uh, we propose to make an alliance to you, verse 12. This bread of ours was still warm when we bought it from home as provisions the day we left to come to you, but now it's dry and crumbled. Here are wine skins, which were new when we filled them, but now they are torn. Look at our garments and our sandals, which are worn out from the very long journey. Then the Israelite princes uh, partook of their provisions. I had a bit of taste. So yes, this bread is truly mouldy. Um, that's, I had to put them myself. Um, without seeking advice of the Lord, so, the alliance, so Joshua made an alliance with them and entered into agreement to spare them with the princes of the community sealed with an oath. Right? Verse 14, that's the one to star across. Without inquiring of the Lord, they saw something, they judged it, and they made a decision. They didn't ask God, they were on autopilot. And then we see what happens. So what, what happens after that is they realise, in fact, I've, I've got a map here, it's really great. So you've got Gilgal here, uh, Jericho there, quite close, see? I was into geography, because when you study history, you can't do geography, so this is, this is distance for me. So here's, here's Gilgal, here's, here's Jericho, and Gilead's uh, not here, it's here. So about a day's journey, or two or three journeys, they realised, actually, this place that they said they from far away was actually really close. It's actually within the area of, uh, which becomes Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin overseas. It's right fat, flat bang in the middle of the whole kind of thing. It's not far away at all. They didn't seek of the Lord. They saw the thing. And this is Joshua. This is Joshua. It's just like Gideon. This is Joshua. It's not, it's not like, we're not talking about someone's a bit daft. Sometimes we think Samson's a bit daft, don't we? Or we think Adam's a bit daft. We know they're not, but these guys really are not daft. They've had, God's been operating with them. They've just turned their brains, just gone onto autopilot. I thought, well, there you go. Those clothes are worn out. That bread is mouldy. Let's make an alliance with these guys. I was hearing recently a whole thing about sometimes there are things we come across in our lives which we don't deal with as God would have us deal with. Instead, what we do is we make an alliance and then we try to manage it. And if we go on then with those verses, um, the people, so the rulers make this deal with them. The people are not happy with Joshua and the, and the other leaders. And they really want to do something to him. But they say, listen, we've made an oath. It's interesting, that oath, you kind of think, well, that oath was made under deception. When Saul, a couple of hundred years later, goes and attacks the Gibeonites, God deals with him because they didn't keep to their word, their word that was made in the wrong place. So that, that oath was something that you had to stick by. So what Joshua says in the end was, uh, for this you're accursed, every one of you will always be a slave. You'll be the hewers of wood and the drawers of water. So he makes them slaves, but he manages them. He doesn't wipe them out because the alliance is made. And I think there's a, there's a warning for us there. Are there things that we should be wiping out and dealing with that instead we're seeking to manage? Oh, I've got it enslaved. I'm, I'm managing this, but it's still there. Because if God says this is the land for you, let's not manage it. Let's not have a second-class thing going on. Let's deal with it. Let's move on past. 
They looked with their own understanding and they didn't inquire of the Lord. They were on autopilot. We can't be on autopilot. Spiritual maturity is required of us. That comes partly from discipleship. We're not living on manna anymore. We're not living a hand-to-mouth existence, but we're having to cultivate the land. We're possessing the land. We need to be fully aware of the enemy and the enemy's culture, which is attractive. It's a do-as-you-please culture. It's really attractive. I found myself in a conversation yesterday with one of my children who said to me, well, why wouldn't someone just do something for themselves? Why would they do something for someone else? And I thought, it's interesting. I'm having to explain why we shouldn't be selfish. But actually, that's probably a conversation we need to have more often. We shouldn't just assume that people agree that we should be selfish. Like, Like Nehemiah... We need to be at the wall with the trowel and the tools of our trade, but with a sword as well. I think there is a thing about possessing the land. It's not all going to fall in our laps. There is some work that we have to do, and there's, a, there's an attention we need to pay to the whole thing. I, I looked, I almost showed you a GCSE history video. I got very excited. I was watching it last night. I realized we really wouldn't have the time. But I did. But as I watched it again, I've not watched it for a number of years. But it, I got this this feeling of terror in me, and it's a very interesting thing. It's called History File, and it shows different aspects of living in Nazi Germany: what it was like for women, what it was like for Jews, what it was like for young people. And and the clip I was particularly uh, thinking to show you. There's so many clips that are really powerful. It was interesting um, about. Uh, six months after Hitler comes to power in 1933, he's giving a speech. He says, when my enemies, when the people that don't support me say we don't support you, he said, I don't care because I have your children. He actually states, I have your children. And soon they will know nothing about the community that I talk of. And here's the interesting thing. He went and he did it. All the children were sucked into various different Nazi things. They took things over, and they just gradually brainwashed them. And at one point, they, what the story takes place, we watch, a, we watch a child who was in the Hitler Youth, and he was sucked into it. And his dad was a trade unionist, so he knew something was wrong. And his father says to him, all this, all this is border dash. All this that you're being taught in school, all this is rubbish. And he says, what, that's what I'm going to do? I'm going to go into school, I'm going to tell my teacher, it's Balderdash. And he said, the terror on my parents' face when they realised what power that kids had over them. He said, their face is drained. Because kids would do it. They would go and say, my parents are speaking against the regime, my parents are speaking against Hitler. And then the Gestapo would go and pick them up and take them away. There was never enough secret police in Germany to manage Germany. They relied on people giving people up like that and kids doing it all the time. And it's interesting because one of the things that I'm going to study and want to come back to us is I think we are now in a place where we need to think about what we say in our homes and how we say it outside of our homes. Because the freedom of what we talk about and how we express ourselves, particularly around identity, is something we've got to think about. Not that we're going to be picked up a whisk away. But I don't believe in our nation at this time we have freedom of expression. Because the way the news hunts people down. the way Because, you know what, if I say, actually, there is a way to live and there's a good way to live, that doesn't go with a laissez-faire religion. That doesn't go with a, don't you tell me what to do. Don't you tell me how to be. And the whole of media is, 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 is tempered that way. So, as that, as that father is talking to his son, he says, listen, two plus two, they can't change that. But this other stuff, if it's opinion, ask whose opinion it is. But what did the Nazis do? Two plus two wasn't just that. They asked the children to work out if we did away with all of the, uh, all the disabled people in Germany, how much money would it save Germany? The maths had the whole thing of the country within it. The whole way of thinking was within it. And that's, I think that's why we have to be awake. We can't be on autopilot. We're not living in Nazi Germany. Okay, But we aren't living in a place which is free. We are living in a place that has a complete different mindset to us. It demands child sacrifice, but it doesn't set laws. Now, I have not worked out what that means, but we do know, from those of us who looked at parenting stuff, that some of the worshipping of our children 
that the world has seemed to push out is actually a form of child abuse in itself. Not disciplining, not giving lead to our children is, is actually not caring for them. So here we have a culture we're lived in, and the thing I would want you to do today is to think, actually, what, what is it, how is that culture of this world, how is the religion of this world in coming into my household and affecting us? How is it affecting us? Where, where are we, you know, I don't want us to become, I don't want us to go into a ghetto and to kind of, to cost, but I do want us to be aware, I don't want us to be on autopilot in that sense. I don't know if you noticed on the news today, uh, the news this week, that Playboy has decided it's not going to show nudes anymore. I've been toying with an article. I was going to call it the sad demise of Playboy. <laughs> the, uh, this is why I'm pleased my mother's not here. Um, <laughs> the editor says, my 12-year-old self is really disappointed with my 40-year-old self now. But why have they stopped showing nudes on Playboy? Don't need to. You're two clicks away from any sexual act that you want to see. Okay? So you don't need to show it anymore. It's so passe. It's there. It's part of the deal. It's, it's right there in front of us. It's naturalised. It's normalised. Jamie's been talking that when he was a kid, which was only a year or so after I was a kid, but... If, someone, if some, some lad had some pornography, it was kind of a little bit of a, you're a bit weird. But now, it's a kind of, everyone does it. There's a lessening and that kind of stuff. And there's lots of other things. I'm just picking up on those things because it was in the news particularly. So the culture is right there in front of us. Right. This is where I really wish I'd numbered my sheets of paper because I'm all over the place. If I start again, you'll know we're in trouble. And those of you who are sleeping, we can wake up and hear it again. Right. There's a powerful picture we have to have of needing to be awake and inquiring of God. And we see that with that, that warning about the Gibeonites. Our relationships need to be active and not passive. We need to be aware of the idolatry of self and how it touches down in us. Yeah? And that means we need to challenge one another. We need to not let things just slip by. We need to challenge one another. We need to be thinking we need to be asking questions. When someone says something, don't think, oh, let, you know, they're in, I don't know, they're in Phil's, um, uh, what, you got a development group or a home group? Development group. They're in Phil's development group, he'll deal with that. No, we all need to deal with it. We need to not let the thing slip by because, you know, they may not say it to Phil. We need, to, we need to be working out our salvation with fear and trembling. We need to be thinking about these because, you know, the whole, the whole world is seeping with this religion, its own religion. It's seeping to affect us in different ways. And we have to stand up and think on what's happening. Apprenticeship, discipleship, um, that whole thing bucks the worldly trend because I'm sitting under. And that's, that's a powerful in itself. In our families, our family settings, our home settings, I think we should be talking about these things. I think we should be talking about worldly attitudes, what we think. I've had parents talk to me um, particularly about things to do with homosexuality and that kind of thing. And uh, their kids would say to them, well, you know, my friend, she says she's lesbian, she says she's gay or whatever, but they're just nice, they're really nice people. Nice doesn't make it right. Normal doesn't make it right. Okay? And whatever else it would be. Yeah, I don't just want to touch down on one issue, but whatever, just because it's nice doesn't mean it's correct. Doesn't mean we don't love someone, doesn't mean we don't accept them, doesn't mean, but actually we've got to work out what that means. But just because something is normal doesn't mean it's right. Because child sacrifice in Canaan was normal. I got really irritated when I was, when I was doing um, history and we were looking at the terrible things that empire... Well, the empire wasn't great. But they would talk about, oh, you know, these, one of these, these, these wonderful indigenous cultures that were destroyed. And I said, listen, I was already relatively unpopular in my history group because I'd suggested to other students that we were here to listen, not to talk. 
So, and it was interesting watching people well, I won't mouth it because then you'll know what they said, but they didn't say nice things to me, and the second word was you. So, but, you know, because I was into upsetting things, because I didn't live on site, you know, I said, can we just remember that these, these groups that we're talking about that, that Europeans destroyed were into ritual child sacrifice as part of their way of being. Let's just remember this culture that we should have, we should have preserved was actually horrific, bloodthirsty, and pretty rotten. I'm not saying the thing that came afterwards was wonderfully better, but at least, it, you know, let's not pretend that it was all pure, just because the native didn't mean that it was pure in that sense. There are two kings. Uh, if I get them right, certainly one was Josiah, and one was, Hez- I think it's Hezekiah. The, the only kings that are, that are held up as being kings that undid the idolatry. So it's even Solomon. Even Solomon put up uh, uh, worship and that kind of thing. And I was struck by this, and I want to leave you with this, because I don't know quite what to do about it, so I thought I'd give it to you. So I, I remembered, obviously we named Josiah Josiah, because we were looking at Josiah, and we were looking at all the kings at the time when we were, we were doing the teaching here. And I remembered he was a reforming king, and I remember there were good things about him. But as I was reading the other day, I came across some stuff. So, he, so they, they lose the book of the law. Then Josiah comes to the throne at a young age, and he's obviously wanting to reform. And they find the book of the law, and he decides he's going to deal with the idol worship in Israel at the time. So he's, he's, he's going to get... I thought, okay, so he took down some statues, did some stuff. But actually, it goes a bit further. If you turn to 2 Kings 23... Verse 16. So he's, he's seeking out the different places, the different idol worship. And he says, When Josiah turned and saw the graves there on the mountainside, he ordered the bones taken from the graves and burned on the altar, and thus defiled it, fulfilling the word of the Lord. That's, you know, that's pretty gruesome. He's burning the bones of pagan priests on their altar, which apparently means it's defiled. Right? Verse 20 goes a bit further. He slaughtered upon the altars all the priests of the high place and at the shrines and burned human bones upon them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. So it wasn't a just let's clear stuff out. He went, you know, I, I, I suppose you kind of see it. it's kind of you take the thing and then you pee on it. it you know, he defiled the thing. He wasn't just clearing out the idolatry, but he then went further and, 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 and made it, you couldn't do anything there. And the thing I was struck with when I was reading this was I was thinking, okay, and this is, this is, a, this is a very potent thing for me, I know there is idolatry, I know there's things of this world, I know there's a way of being that's not right, and I will avoid and stick clear. But the challenge on me is this, am I supposed to defile the works of the enemy? Am I supposed to go that bit further? You know, in, in the public positions that some of us have, Richard, the head teacher, how's Christmas with you guys? Are you doing it or not doing Christmas? You're doing Christmas. Sometimes, you know, there's a whole thing about not doing Christmas. Okay? Now, that, that's a choice. I'm not saying that doing Christmas, therefore, makes, makes you godly. Certainly not the way most of the world does it. But there are things, there are pressures put upon us. Richard's got one throw of the dice. If he decides he's going to make a stand against idolatry in his public position, he probably can do it over one thing, and that may be the end of it. We're not, we're not mucking around here. We're, talking about, we're not saying, oh, yes, let's deal with idolatry, and let's deal with it in a public sense, and that's it. We've got, to, we've got to inquire of God. We've got to know what to do. If I'm to make statements about faith and about God's place in our nation, I can only, I can, I've only got one throw of the dice. If I miss God's timing... His rightness, even if I get his timing, I may go on. So I need your prayer. Richard needs your prayer. And we all need a prayer to do that. It's a bit different within our own households as a thing to do, but there is a thing about defiling. And so I want to put that as a challenge. It's not just saying, okay, I'm not going to go and bow at Baal. I'm going to root that in my own life. But actually, there's something I need to do in my community. There's something I need to do in my family or my extended family, those kind of things. So, hoping that I'm finding my way back to my starting piece of paper. Let's go back to our starting things. 
What should our response be? We don't want to be like the Israelites who'd seen so much that God had done that they decided to judge and thought, actually, we'll make an alliance with the Gibeonites. We don't want to be on autopilot. We don't want to drift through thinking, these poor people, this is nice, I'll judge them myself. We need to inquire of God. We don't accept the culture and the ways of the world around us without interrogation, without working out what it should be. And we want to root out this thing of idolatry in us. Where does that self thing happen? And you know what? It's really easy to test it in lots of ways. Where do we get puffed up? Where does someone say something to us? Oh, I really don't like it when they say that like that. Where, where, is, where is it basically rebellion? in those kind of things. That's, that's, you know what? This funny thing is I've been chewing this over for the past year or so, different bits. I've been thinking, actually, it's the same old, same old. It's who's king? Who's God? And actually, those things are, are really potent to us. Okay? So, let's, uh, let's consider, let's search, let's think, see if there's any autopilots, and let's start to see if there's any need to deal with um, idolatry in our own lives. Good. Thank you, Daniel. Lucy? Where are you? There you are. Right. Um, Gary brought a a sense to me during worship that that God wants to break barriers for people today. So if you feel there's some barriers in your mind you're looking for God to break, then do come and um, you can access the, the prayer team after. Um, when we were worshipping, God gave me a picture that didn't really fit with the worship, but um, it really fitted with what Daniel said, so I asked Nathan if I could share it. So it's a picture of, a, we've seen quite a lot of rugby lately, whether we want to or not, haven't we? And um, it was a rugby pitch, and there was a guy running with a ball to get a try, like really running. Um, and the other team members were just standing there watching, but his own, one of his own team members is going in for the tackle, I'm thinking, this is odd picture. But actually, he's going for an own goal. He's got disorientated. So he's going for an own goal. He's got the rugby ball. He's going for the line. And one of his own team is tackling him. And to me, the picture is of discipleship. You know, we're not in this alone. We're in a team. And I think for, for us, some of us, maybe some people can identify more strongly for a particular situation you're going for something with all your heart, but somebody's coming in and tackling you. That's probably the person who you're looking for for discipleship. And it's like saying, am I going to say, what are you doing? Get off. I know what I'm doing. Or are you going to say, oh, okay, you're, you're tackling me on this one. I'm going to trust your, <clears throat> your intervention, your judgment in this situation. Right. Thank you. Um, so that's it. So if you want prayer, the prayer team will be here. Um, there's details in the newsletter about where the tea and coffee are. Thank you very much. <laughs>